0: When it comes to it security there are a lot of marketing pitches out there offering bullish assessments of certain technologies and of course the particular products being pitched really there's nothing wrong with marketers doing their jobs and it's especially useful when this information leads to learning about emerging technologies and innovative products with a great deal of potential but it's also nice to get some security straight talk frankly so much noise concerning security products and innovation can be a liability because it's just more information process. There's a real need for clear-eyed, big picture assessment of the current IT security landscape. This includes providing a sense of the big threats and what can be done to mitigate them both on the macro and micro level. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Jim Alcove, the Chief Trust Officer at Salesforce and George Kurtz, the President, CEO, and co-founder of CrowdStrike, offer a straightforward analysis of current security risks and solutions. They also discuss promising technologies and companies that are providing value in the security space. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have another episode in our cybersecurity awareness series. We have Jim Alcove, he is the chief trust officer at Salesforce, and we have George Kurtz. He's the CEO and co-founder of CrowdStrike. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. All right, right out the gate, we want to give you guys a chance in case someone doesn't know who CrowdStrike, and certainly I think everyone knows who Salesforce is, but someone might not. George, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about what is CrowdStrike what does it do? And then we'll kick it to Jim. Jim, for sure. Tell us what a chief trust officer does. But George, let's kick it off.
1: Well, I, cu- I couldn't start this podcast without saying that we're the Salesforce of security, which I've said for a long period of time. And that's to pay homage to, uh, to Salesforce, of course. And we're a leader in endpoint uh, security protection and uh, visibility. And we've got a platform we call Falcon, which has uh, been deployed and many, many large organizations all across the globe. And the overall goal for us is to identify and stop breaches. And uh, we've taken, I think, a unique view of doing that, leveraging AI and visibility across uh, endpoints that people never envisioned. So there's a lot more to it, but uh, at a high level, we're focused on stopping breaches. And we do have a small part of our business, which is very strategic, that uh, responds to a lot of the breaches that you read about in newspapers. So that's CrowdStrike.
0: Yeah, we're definitely going to dive into more of that because endpoint security, as, as everyone knows, with remote or hybrid work models that are going to be here to stay, more endpoints than ever for you to protect. Jim, tell us a little about Chief Trust Officer at Salesforce. What is your principal role?
2: So at Salesforce, you know, we're helping our customers succeed by delivering a 360 degree view of their customers. But also with Slack, we're delivering, helping them deliver the, the, their digital HQ, which really is about how we uh, all succeed from anywhere in this new world. As a chief trust officer for Salesforce, not a lot of companies have chief trust officers. I'm responsible for all of our global, uh, global information security, but also our global information management and strategies, so data governance. Um, and I'm also responsible for our government cloud. And then finally, I'm, I'm part of a, a council of executives who's, who, whose job it is to take care of all the many facets of trust. When you think about trust, all companies need to be thinking about trust first. And so we have a group of executives who really manage all of the different facets of trust from security to ethical and humane use, to ethics and integrity, to trust and safety. I'm part of that key stakeholder
0: group as well. That's perfect. Now, Jim, we're going to start the conversation and, and George, for sure, jump in as soon as you can. One of the things you just mentioned is, of course, the government side of things. And one of the things we've noticed about different cloud security companies or security companies in general, cybersecurity companies that have joined the show, is they talked about the rise of the sophistication of the people that are making the attacks. What used to be thought of as just a group of rogue people sitting in a basement somewhere is now actual government entities that are taking on sophisticated breaches or attempts. Could, because the news would have us believe that the level of sophistication just keeps increasing from the bad actors. What do you see out there from the threat level?
2: I'm going to let George take a lot of this because he's a, he's he's a deep expert in this space. But I'll say as someone who leads security at a commercial entity, I think that the really troubling trend that we're seeing is that commercial entities are now being used as part of attacks in the nation state espionage game. And I think that you know this is where I think we need to reestablish cyber norms across governments around the world. I think that there needs to be things that are are off limits. This, to me, is one of them. With the most recent supply chain attacks that that you've seen, that's the really troubling trend. I think uh, I'll I'll pass it to George on some of the escalating uh, sophistication uh, because I know he has a great visibility there. Yeah, thanks, Jim. So, uh, just to kind of break it down to to make it a little bit easier to digest,
1: we look at these uh, adversaries, and we take an adversary view at CrowdStrike in the three buckets. First one being nation state, the second one being e crime, and the third being hacktivism. And if we look at the nation state activities, incredibly sophisticated. A lot of the actors that you would know um, and read about, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, uh, North Korea, all have uh, amazing capabilities in this area, and What Jim is referring to is uh, supply chain attacks where a nation state has the time, they have the money, they have inclination to wait a few years to be able to get into a company, to be patient, to get into source code, to to let it build, to wait another year just so nobody realizes there was a change and then execute something like uh, the uh, sunburst activity that we saw late last year. So incredibly uh, sophisticated and patient and lots of money. But what we're seeing is, a lot of those techniques flow down into e-crime. And e-crime used to be a little bit of a spray and pray. Albert, I'd send you an email, you click on it, you get infected. You'd send me 300 Bitcoin, not 300, but $300 worth of Bitcoin to get your stuff, your pictures back and you'd be off to the races. But now this has really moved to big game hunting where you want to get into a company and you want to be able to deploy your malware everywhere. But before you do that, you're actually going to steal the data and you're going to put the data aside, and when you encrypt that computer or computers or network, you're basically going to say, pay us the ransom, right? And if you say, hey, no problem, we've got backups, go away, they basically just take your data and and move it to a dump site, and they extort you to not dump your data. So, it's a bit of a Hobson's choice right now, and the adversaries have really taken a page out of the sophistication playbook
0: of the nation-state actors. This is something that we've talked with the previous guests about, whether it's investment, education, training, resources, more technical expertise. How do you combat this? Because this isn't going to change. Like you kind of said a big game hunting. Like this is, you know, when we saw, for example, the Colonial Pipeline, which we talked about earlier in the year, and like their first reaction was to pay. Now, eventually it caught the people. I, believe, I read that the, they caught the people that did that. But Colonial Pipeline, that, their reaction was to pay. You mentioned it, George, based on what you said, like the big game hunters here. I think a lot of them know they're going to get paid or they're going to get what they want. So how do you prevent that? I guess that that's where, that's where we're going to lean into you. (laughs) Let's talk about the positive side. Like, how do we stop this? Well, maybe I'll take a shot. And then, you know, Jim is, is working at
1: scale with, uh, with a massive company. And uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that have to happen, not just in cybersecurity, but when you look at these sort of attacks, I think one of the first things that we, we try to do is just understand the adversary groups it's a little bit like going into battle. You know, you wouldn't go into battle not knowing who your adversary was and what their capabilities are. They bring bazookas or bayonets to the gunfight. And we track over 150 different adversary groups, uh, nation, state, and crime actors, and we understand how they operate and what they target. And on a daily basis, we receive about a trillion signals. These are events that we get from all these endpoints and workloads per day. So to put that in perspective, we receive more signals from all these endpoints then twitter has tweets in an entire year with that we have a pretty good idea of what's happening right so when we look at these attacks a lot of it is getting into a company exploiting a vulnerability or exploiting a weakness in a human getting a password getting onto a system and then uh, fanning out or laterally moving across the network and then implementing the ransomware as an example we're talking about ransomware so For us, obviously, you know, it's what we do. Endpoint visibility and protection is really important because it's the last person standing, right? You got, everyone's gone through the network. They've gone through email. They've, They've hit everything. And the tip of the spear is the endpoint and that workload in the cloud. So you have to have visibility and protection there. And that's, you know, that's not everything. There's a lot of things that you want to do, but that certainly is a big point of protection is to have that visibility and control. And I know Jim has a lot of things that he works on well beyond that.
2: We talked about the sophisticated nation state actors in supply chain attacks, but when you think about ransomware and a lot of the threats that commercial entities face, A lot of the things that we're facing just require us to remember to nail the basics. You know, it's common things that you need to do really well in order to make sure that you're going to be able to prevent a lot of these incidents. And so things like patching your systems, most of the vulnerabilities being used in ransomware and other things are actually have been disclosed and around for a while. There are not a lot of zero days being used in ransomware. Things like multi-factor authentication, you know, multi-factor authentication has been a good idea for a really long time. It's really great to see other, uh, you know, the world really stepping up its game relative to multi-factor authentication. You know, we've asked all of our customers to turn on multi-factor authentication at Salesforce by the end of January of 2022. So those kinds of things, that basic cybersecurity hygiene is really, really important. And then you can get onto some of the really important other controls, like the work that George's team does in in securing endpoints, uh, like the partnership that we have with them.
0: We've heard it before in cybersecurity conversations that a lot of times the weakest link is actually the people. And you mentioned right there, multi factor authentication is like a basic thing that everyone blocking and tackling every company should implement this. Why is there resistance to this? Because when I want to think to myself, right? And I'll just use myself not in the scope of a big company because I missions obviously a smaller company. I'm no different from, I think, a lot of workers where I think multi factor authentication is annoying. Why is like, I guess, the individual behavior? or perception of it
2: so hard to sway. I think we all know that there are a lot of things that are good for us that are hard for us to do. Eating vegetables (laughs) is good for us, but it doesn't mean that we do it all the time. And I think that there's a lot of education and culture work that that goes behind enabling us enabling us to get there. I think the other thing we've got to do is remember that, you know, whether it's us as individuals in the consumer space or it's uh, employees in a business or other organization, people really just want to do the right thing and get their jobs done. And so when you introduce friction into the system, nature will find a way to sort of get around the things that you put in place to, to put security controls on things. And so, so multi-factor has historically had a lot of friction associated with it. it there was work to set it up. And then, you, yeah, there's an extra step every time you sign in. And a lot of companies don't really think about how many times a user signs in to something in a day. And it's it's often way too many. And so I think that there's some great technology coming that's available today and is becoming much more widespread with passwordless and biometrics that really take all, all the pain actually out of the sign-in process and, and eliminate passwords altogether. So we get rid of the password altogether and you get a much fr- more friction-free sign-in experience. So it's a win-win for the the human. It, you It gets you a better sign-in experience than even a password and you get a more secure signing experience. Just to follow on, I think
1: that's right. The more friction you have, the more particularly developers want to go in a different direction, (laughs) as we all know. But to be candid, you know, Jim and I remember the old RSA days, you know, you'd have to go find your token. You'd have to go, you guys, you probably remember too, right? You have to punch in six numbers. And if you missed the window, you were doing it again. And it was just so annoying. But in today's environment, it literally, the app comes up, you click a checkbox
0: and you move on. I mean, it really isn't that hard. You know, that's one of the things that's going to continue to happen. You guys both hinted at it. We talked about it for the top of the show. So, hybrid workforce is here. There's going to be more cloud services. Data is going to more interconnect. There's going to be more opportunities, I guess, gateways or pathways to be breached. How do you guys think of services? How do you guys think of uh, supporting remote workforce or hybrid model workforce, wherever that is? And just think of like in the general landscape, because if it does feel like it's going to be increasingly easy to break the find a, find a weak link, because there's just going to be more options available. It seems that way for from an outsider's perspective. How do you how are you thinking about how to simplify this process or making it more secure, George? When you have so many more people, that's just going to create more endpoints than ever. More software is going to be intercompatible. We already know that's happening right now, how do you guys think about making and simplifying that for like someone like Jim so he can sit there and understand what's happening in his his corporation, his ecosystem?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. There's this really cool thing that came out. It's called the cloud. and uh, people decided they would actually use that for security. You know I say that a little tongue- in cheek because when I started the company in two thousand and eleven it wasn't really fashionable to be delivering. Endpoint security from the cloud—it was like, wow, that's kind of scary. But you know, <laughs> if you look at the pandemic uh, and you look at our customers, and even as a company, we're very remote and, and cloud-first, as you might imagine. It really wasn't a heavy lift for us because in today's environment, the firewall is is pretty much gone. The, the corporate network, yeah, it's still there, but when you turn the company inside out and you say you you've got a hundred or two hundred thousand remote employees, which is what happened with COVID. You know, there's no firewall internally, right? So you have to look at other mechanisms to be able to protect these, these endpoints. And even with the firewall, it's been nothing you know, more than a speed bump on the information superhighway. So I think leveraging the cloud, understanding that each endpoint and workload needs to be protected itself. The endpoint is, is the new firewall. That's, I think, served our customers really well to be able to get visibility, to be able to get control, to be able to protect those, no matter where those uh, endpoints are. And it's really work from anywhere particularly because we're talking about this remote workforce. We're not going to go back to what we saw before the pandemic. You know, people want to get back into the office and see people because we're, we're humans, but it's going to be some, you know, hybrid version of what we have today. And I think the cloud and all of its benefits, which obviously we know Salesforce is the pioneer there is why we've been so successful in protecting these uh, workloads and, And I know I'll turn it over to Jim, but in, you know, being able to work and be productive and we're a Salesforce proud user and, you know, our folks didn't miss a beat because they were still able to use their system of record, which is Salesforce.
2: I'm aligned with George. I think that just like if we think about digital transformation, you know, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we sort of saw three years of digital transformation happen in three months. Well, you know, the transition to a world of what, what security practitioners would call zero trust, this transition that George is talking about where, you know, the endpoint and identity, I think would be the other part of that piece of that, that I would say are really the new perimeter versus a lot of what we historically have thought about as a, a network perimeter. That transition was already happening prior to the pandemic, but I think it's a accelerated for a huge number of companies. So it's not that, you know, the COVID pandemic and the remote work has really brought on something that's brand new thinking and security. It's that it's accelerated things that were good ideas. And so zero moving to zero trust, the focus on the endpoint, the focus on identity, you know, we're, we're the right transitions for security. And now, and now I think they're happening at a, a much accelerated pace, which I think will be great because even as a uh, employees come back into the offices, what you want them to do is, yeah, you have a corporate network, but you don't want that network to represent any level of trust. What you wanted that network to do is provide connectivity. The reachability of something shouldn't imply that you should have access to, to information like, like historically it has in many corporate networks. One of
0: the fascinating things that we've had on the show is we've had people and representatives from you know, some of the public clouds, AWS, GCP, and they talked about how how much of the workloads of the world are in the cloud today? And they, some of them are forecasting like only like twenty percent, only twenty percent have moved to the cloud. Yeah, George, you hinted at it before. It's like a decade ago you guys made the move, and I'm sure a decade ago a lot of people made the move. Why do you think that there's still some resistance? Because there is. There has to be. If only twenty percent of the workloads are in the cloud, that means eighty percent of people ha- either a have not made the move or b some somewhat skeptical.
1: In the early days, people would say, "Wow, the cloud is scary and it's it's not secure," and you know, my view is it can be a lot more secure than than on-premise technology because you've got, you know, when you look at the big cloud providers, their business is to make sure that things are secure, right? And it's a shared model. So as a customer, you have to make sure that after everything they give you, you turn on the policies and then you actually protect all these workloads and your applications. So it's not just move there and, you know, hope for the best. There, There's effort that has to happen. With the pandemic, you know, we, we've seen this digital transformation um, and I talked to a CIO during the middle of the pandemic and I said, how's your digital transformation going? And he's like, well, we executed our two-year plan like last night, you know? So <laughs> I, I think it really accelerated things. And the challenge that you have is there's so many institutionalized legacy systems that are, we see it, they're running windows XP, windows 2000, like old things that no one wants to break. And there's just kind of this lack of a uh, inertia that people are like, well, we're not going to move it. It works. And I think now with, you know, rather than lift and shift, it's like, let's figure out the better way to do it and do that in the cloud rather than the old way. And that's really what we're seeing. So early innings for this digital transformation, you know, that's why we look at it from a company perspective as a massive opportunity. We protect about a billion and 0.2, a billion three workloads per day that are
0: ephemeral workloads in the cloud. And yeah, you know, I think that's just the beginning. Jim, on your side, do you, when you talk to other team members, How, what do you think, why do you think the resistance is there or do you, why do you think it's not accelerated? You know, George mentioned legacy. I didn't know if you had any other reasons, was it culture, was it people? It feels like it should accelerate even faster, but it's moving at the pace it's moving right now.
2: One, I think it's actually accelerated tremendously over the last 18 months. I think that, you know, from the customers I talk to, their, their cloud transformations are moving faster than ever. George is right that people are rethinking legacy systems. I do think historically there'd been, there had been some concern about control. The transition to cloud uh means a lack of control. But I think that all of us have come together and and helped customers understand that. There's a certain amount of the security responsibility for their data that they're sharing, they're delegating to a cloud provider, you know, in our case, Salesforce to build and run our our services with excellence. And we're able to invest at a level that most companies aren't able to invest in that. And then as George said, there's a shared responsibility. So there are a set of things that customers do have to do, but it does reduce the burden on them versus running everything top to bottom themselves. And I think customers are really starting to see that and thinking about, Where do they deploy their resources to where they'll be differentiated to accelerate their business versus doing things that are really undifferentiated for the business? So over the past 18 months, I've seen a tremendous acceleration. It'd be interesting to, you know, in another six months to to re-baseline those numbers and, and see where we're at. We got to get one of the sales reps
0: back on from the public clouds and tell us how much more pipeline has left to go. That'd be be fascinating stuff. You know, when it comes to like the next wave of cybersecurity, whether it's at the cloud level, whether it's at the actual person, employee level, down to the 2FA authentication, biometric scanning, what are some of the, the technologies you two are personally really excited about seeing like you think it's going to make life easier for businesses and how much for the the people inside the businesses. What are some of the things that you're seeing that you're really excited about? Jim, we'll start with you.
2: I'm super excited about where we're all going with automation and AI. George mentioned AI earlier and some of the, the work that his team is doing in that space. And I think that AI and detection, anomaly detection of things has been sort of the first place where we've seen real artificial intelligence sort of make its way into security. Although I think we've been talking about AI, Georgian security for 10 years or something. (laughs) But the reality is you're you're really starting to see it it actually show up and, and, and add value in the, in, in certain spaces today. But I think the the opportunity for us to, to accelerate the value that AI is bringing to security is, are tremendous, you know, in, in more spaces than just, you know, threat detection or anomaly detection, but, you know, things like access management, where today everything is incredibly manual and implementing least privilege in an enterprise at scale is, is a really challenging thing for people to do. And artificial intelligence also has, has a chance to help us really deal with, you know, the the constraints that all of us are feeling on on talent, which is that even though we all have enormous efforts to to find new talent, look for talent in new places, train new talent, you know, there's still a, a significant shortage, and many of us have large numbers of positions still open. Um, in my case, hundreds to, of positions still available to, to hire. And I think that you know, artificial intelligence and reducing number and humans involved in in simple tasks uh, would would have a tremendous benefit there.
1: I agree with Jim in terms of the the automation is a big element, uh, as well as making that kind of AI driven. Uh, I think one of the areas that gets us excited is just rethinking uh, data protection. We acquired a company just recently, uh, Secure Circle, that's focused on doing that. And when you think about technologies like DLP, I I think they're fundamentally broken. There's a lot of regex rules and just it's kind of a compliance checkbox. I don't know really what it does. It's a big mess for a lot of companies to actually administer. But when we think about the cloud and where data lies, it's, it doesn't just lie on the internal network anymore. Most of the data, the, the critical data is in the cloud somewhere. It's out in, in any of these SaaS providers. So the ability to identify that data, to protect that data at rest and in transit, even if it moves outside of your organization to companies that don't have your agent or network, your, your technology it's still protecting people leave, um, which is a big challenge. I'm sure Jim can comment on it. People are, are very mobile. They're coming and going. And making sure that you can protect your intellectual property is one of the highest risk factors on any board's list. I think there's a way to, to kind of revolutionize that data protection. It's something we're focused on, but that gets me excited because it's been 20 years of just the
0: same old, same old. So the way you describe that, is it, is it like similar to the technology that we have when we buy like songs of iTunes, where it's like, hey, if you copy and send it to somebody, if you don't have your account, it doesn't matter. Like you can't actually read the song.
1: It's actually very similar. So uh, it's circles of trust, right? So you have a circle of trust within your organization, and then you have different circles that may expand or contract as as that data moves, right? Because data is always in motion. Sure. And uh, just like uh, if you sent me a song from your iTunes account, it's going to be useless, right? But uh, if you sent it to someone in your family who's part of your family account,
0: probably works, right? It's a very similar concept. I mean, we've had CEOs and uh, CIOs on our show firsthand talk about like the bring your own device is just such a headache. Like they don't know what data is on their personal machines. Like they have to offer it. uh, And this would answer that. Yeah. And that's what we think, you know, what people want is, and, you know, Jim is the best person to ask because he has
1: to run a lot of this is, you know, (laughs) they want to be able to understand where their data is, what's critical, and they want to be able to protect it if it's moving outside the organization or if someone leaves, you yeah, I'm simplifying it, but that's, that's like a big problem right now is people are just moving, taking source code, taking customer list, all kinds of stuff. And without the ability to kind of answer the question, where is that data and is it protected? You know, it leaves people in a, in a precarious position. So that's really what we're trying to solve. Um, it's not
2: gonna solve everything out there, but that's like 80, 90% of the pain points. There are some big opportunities in DOP. I think that, as George said, the manageability of DLP, you know, has been a struggle for a long time. I think that, you know, I mentioned sort of, you know, access management as part of an opportunity for, for artificial intelligence. I think all of us, when you get to a large you know, we get to a large organization of which there are a lot there are a lot of large organizations today being able to to ensure that people have access to the information they need to do their job but they don't have more access than they need is something that's a big challenge and so and i don't think that asking humans to make those determinations is going to work we need systems that will do that automatically for us that's the opportunity in dlp is to sort of take us from a world where there's a massive uplift of sort of a large consulting project to sort of define who should have access to what, and then codify that. And then as it changes, as George points out, you know, things change, everything's very fluid in terms of people change jobs within the company, It's not just people leaving the company, but even within the company, people changing jobs um, and ensuring that once they leave their job, the expectation is they don't have access to the data they don't need to have access to anymore. And so, you know, those things are really uh, core problems that everybody needs to solve. And, you know, if you take a product like Salesforce, there's a rich model inside. Of, of the salesforce system that allows our customers to, to ensure that that only you know as employees move around within their organization they only retain access to the things that they're that they're supposed to they're supposed to have access to then as as they lose access to their corporate identity they're going to lose access to their salesforce information as well
0: I've had to administer that, Jim. There's a lot of checkboxes, no doubt about it. I, I had to administer my octa once for, as our company went from zero to 200 people. And I thought to myself, this is hard. So I can't imagine what it is for. So anything, I agree with you. Anything to simplify that process because how it was done in the past, well, how we did it, and I'm going to date myself, is like, through like these requests, like these service requests. And there's like a person that had to do this. And I'm sure a lot of companies are still in that mode. So if AI gets me there, that's gonna be amazing. Curiously, you know, AI is such a big hot topic. When will AI be able to just preemptively solve network patches, security breaches? How far away are our systems from being proactive?
1: It's still far away. We're, we're just really in the early innings of being able to protect systems. Yeah, I mean, a good example is we had to spend a lot of time with customers to prove that, you know, the AI wasn't going to block something that it shouldn't block, right? And, and we're there now. I mean, we've as an industry, we've, we've evolved. When you think about AI is going to figure out how to patch something and take something offline and reboot it and all, sounds good. But knowing the administrators that I know these folks are paranoid, right? And you think about the production environments, you know, you take a, a Salesforce or these big infrastructures, like I just think there's going to be a lot of resistance to do this. And you hear these, you know, marketing terms that get that, that get thrown around autonomous. Like, think about it. We we barely have Tesla, and I love Tesla. It can barely, you know, drive itself straight and goes on the highway. And I'm a huge fan of it, right? But it's still what I'm saying, and I'm, I don't mean, that's not a derogatory comment, but it's not like a level five driving st- in terms of autonomous. And we're like, not there at all in the IT space, right? We're still in the early innings. So when I hear these things, it's kind of like, that's a lot of marketing, but the reality is you got to have some people that really understand. You can automate a lot of it, but at the end of the day, there's still like, I'm still driving the Tesla going like, hey, we should like stop at the light, right? And we
0: should go. And I think that's where we are as an industry. So I'm hoping it it advances, but that's my view. The amount of decision-making probably that goes into just Recognition of things. I don't know how AI gets there in the short term. Jim, how about yourself? Because I, I, I know you probably get more pitches than anybody. Of like, hey, we can do this for you.
2: There are a lot of pitches out there. What what I what I'll say is that. That I think that, you know, there's the grand vision of artificial intelligence, but there are so many big steps that we can take individually that would dramatically improve the situation that I think are much more attainable. You know, like the the work that's going on on threat detection and prevention that George mentioned, there's work that we can do in using ai to automate a lot of simple operational tasks that humans do today all of those will take a lot of cost and a lot of mistakes out of the out of the situation you know a, you know the vast majority of security incidents today are actually caused by intentional accidental human mistakes and so you know if we can take those mistakes out of the system we're going to dramatically improve the security posture of the world you know, without getting to a world where things are completely autonomous. And so, yes, the great autonomous future, I think what all of us would like to continue to drive in that direction. But let's remember that there are some big wins that we can make with AI. You know, if you look at NLP and search, and like, there's lots of things that it, where AI has given us a ton of machine vision, where things, AI has given us a ton of benefit as, you know, in the world today. And I think in security, we have opportunities like that. And I think that's where we should be focused. The grand pitch is a good pitch, but ultimately I take a base Hit, you know, when it when it comes to AI right now.
0: We're coming close to the end of our time, but I'm curious for yourselves, you know, because you guys sit in really awesome unique positions, obviously overseeing large organizations, which means you, of course, meet tons of people that claim that they can partner or claim to be able to do things. But I do want to ask you both: have you seen a startup recently that you're really excited about that they threw a pitch out there? Like whether it works or not, I don't know, but you're just excited about like, hey this is something that if you can figure out this is going to be really really groundbreaking revolutionary something really exciting
1: yeah happy to jump in there's a company called talent i actually invested in it and uh, it's browser based sort of isolation and security and one of the things that probably 10 years ago there was a company called bromium and you know had some promise in terms of being able to isolate a lot of these threats and Ultimately, I mean, really good folks uh, that were involved in it, but it was just kind of hard to operationalize. And, you know, they ultimately sold the company. And I think this browser sort of control, where you, you don't necessarily have to have a CASB and from a SASE perspective, you can do a lot within an existing browser like Chrome, because Chrome is open source. So, you know, you can take Chrome and rebuild it from a security perspective and get a lot of visibility and control. And uh, I think that's has promise, you know, for remote workers, for the ability like, hey, I I want to control my ability to go to any of these SaaS providers and lock down the data. And and, uh, I've got remote workers that um, or contractors. You can kind of lock it down without a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of friction. So still early days and we'll see how it pans out. But if it's made easy by using a browser that everybody knows like Chrome, and I, I think it could have some legs.
0: That's awesome. How about you, Jim? What have you seen that you're really excited about?
2: Well, you know, we talked about this this, this accelerating transition to the cloud. And I think, I think one of the things that a lot of enterprises are struggling with is managing the security posture and configuration of the cloud. And so I think there's a lot of really exciting work going on in that space. And there, there are a number of companies in that space, but there's a particular company called Wiz that's doing some groundbreaking work in that way, in that, that allows you to really get a quick view of the state of your cloud security posture. And I think that CISOs, people who sit in my chair at various companies, you really need, uh, regardless of how you do it, to think hard about the misconfiguration in the cloud and ensuring that we're, that we're working to make sure that we have the right guardrails as we deploy things into the cloud and that those things don't drift over time. We just had the CTO of Wiz on. Yeah.
0: That's a really exciting episode. We'll have to introduce you so you guys meet him. He's super fascinating. They, they talked about how they just fundamentally broke apart the question of what is the actual question we're trying to answer. I think you'd enjoy that episode. But guys, it was awesome having you today on IT Visionaries, talking cybersecurity, talking about the future state of where it's going to go. You know, before you go, we always like to let our audience get to know you guys a little personally. You know, George, you mentioned Tesla. I also wanted to ask you guys more outside the work questions so our audience get get to know you a little better. What's something that you're excited about in your personal lives that maybe we don't know too much about, because like, like you know, a lot of technologists lean on technology to tell them like what is cool. So think of something outside in the world of business. What is something that you're just really bullish on? Something new that you've seen that you're like, hey man, I really, I really hope this works out. Or maybe you already have one and you're saying, hey, this is an awesome gizmo. Jim, we'll start with you. What is some like a personal consumer product you just, you're just pumped by?
2: As someone who's a, a super gadget freak, I think that <laughs> I'm super excited about sort of the the e health space and and what's going on and the evolution of those devices. Obviously, there. I, I well getting into specific names. I'll say I think that I have a whole bunch of devices in that space. And I think allowing us all to take better care of ourselves, uh, you know, the pandemic has really enabled us to, to realize how, how important to us and our employees in the world that taking care of your personal health and well-being is. And I think that technology is really going to play a big role in helping us all remind ourselves what we need to be doing to take care of ourselves. And I think that that's a place that I think we're going to see a big transformation over the next, you know, really just a couple of years. Heck yeah. George, how about yourself? Well, kind of get back
1: to Tesla and I had resisted getting a car for a while. You know, I, I raced cars, I raced Audis, and raced Mercedes and, you know, have those cars and kind of put it on hold to get the Tesla. And I got the Tesla this year and I'm like, man, I I should have got one a lot earlier. It's really cool. And it reboots. And I don't know now I'm trying to, I'm trying to actually get the self-driving module, but you have to have a safety score of like a hundred and being a race car guy, mine's nowhere near that. So, you know, I think it's really cool that that your car just updates and gets new features. And I'm a bit of a sucker because when I bought, I have a Model Y and um, I've been waiting on a, a, a Plaid for a long time. But, um, you know, when they sent me the, the update in the app that said you could take half a second off your car, you know, zero to 60 speed for like two grand, I couldn't hit the
0: button fast enough. So I it's a great really business model and uh, I like the car and it's pretty cool. <laughs> I just saw an article that the Y is now sold out for all of 2021. I mean, it's amazing. I got the car and, and literally I've been waiting for an S. I think it comes on Monday or
1: something for like almost a year and you can't get the cars now. It's just crazy crazy, but I like them. They're good. They work. And you know, I think it's, it's going to be the future.
0: Yeah. I'm i I'm excited about the EV space as well. All these new companies coming. I got to, I got a chance to see firsthand the Rivian yeah. pickup. Right. And I was like, dude, this thing looks, it just feels more, like, I don't know to me, it felt more like more like what I would want. Cause I, I'm, I'm an outdoors person. I go out there. Like I don't, Tesla doesn't feel quite like a car that I want to take on a Rocky uh, trail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But gentlemen, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a little bit about you know, your companies, what you're seeing, what you're predicting for the future. It was awesome hearing your insights here. I'm sure our audience will love it. Thanks again for joining us on IT Visionaries. Thank you. Thank you.